0: Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have an interview for you with Dr. Mitchell Schwartzer. Dr. Schwartzer is a professor in the Department of History of Art and Visual Culture at the California College of the Arts and a historian of architecture and urbanism. He's written books on architectural theory, visual perception, and the buildings of the San Francisco Bay Area. His most recent book and the subject of our conversation today is Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. In this podcast, we cover urban history, development, parks, the politics and economics of professional sports arenas, deindustrialization, and more. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation. Dr. Schwartz, I want to focus on a quotation here at the beginning of your book, kind of to set the stage. And I want to go ahead and quote it here. It said, You said, development, the act of adding and or subtracting from the physical makeup of a city invariably brings forth disruption. How development proceeds gradually or rapidly, thoughtfully or recklessly, openly or behind closed doors determines the severity of this disruption as well as who comes out ahead and who gets left behind, end quote. You seem to be suggesting here that disruption by the use of the word severity generally harms more than helps urban communities. Is that an accurate uh, interpretive lens for how we should look at top-down urban projects in your book?
1: I I, I I don't think it, I think, you know, if you talk about adding something, you know, or changing something, it's inevitably gonna transform that, you know, the area that, you know, And so disruption comes in, it's gonna disrupt things. Disruption is not necessarily a bad thing. Human history is bound up with disruption. You know, the development of technology and cities, and this is, it's all about disruption. It's about disrupting the natural environment. It's about substituting new ways of eating, new ways of sheltering for older ways, which are inevitably gonna disrupt those older ways. So I think disru- disruption is endemic to human activity over the past several hundred thousand, if not million years, you know, over a million years. It's, it's part of what we are. What I refer to in terms of American cities, Oakland, your city, Fresno, mm-hmm. you know, is that it, it's all a matter of how disruption proceeds. Like I would say up until the modern era, up until a couple of hundred years ago, we had a very, you know, the world was pretty hierarchic. You know, there was very small elites that enjoyed all the privileges of life and a mass of population, most of whom worked as farm workers, right? Peasants, sometimes slaves who did not enjoy the the benefits as much, nearly as much. They had much shorter lifespans. They lived in really in, you know, what you'd probably call today wretched circumstances. The great monuments of antiquity, you know, from the Sumerians and Egyptians all the way up, you know, to the modern era were all disruptions. They all created, you know, lavish, you know, places of worship, places of habitation, but largely for the elite. And I think what's changed in the last couple hundred years with American, with our democracy over the past 250 years, and with a kind of general movement toward more egalitarian ways of living, that you know, America, you know, in the United States, initially the only people who voted were white property owners. They they were the only ones who had the franchise, and gradually over time, and that's a great analogy. You know, we expanded the franchise to non-property owners we expanded it to women, we expanded it to non-whites, you know, so that today the franchise for voting is much, much more broad. And a lot of our politics stems around, you know, keeping that broad. And I think cities, the way we look at cities is similar, that, you know, maybe 250 years ago, we wouldn't have talked about, you know, a new project as being negatively disruptive, because we weren't thinking that way. We were thinking, oh, most New projects, a new transportation project, a new housing project, whatever you may, a new uh, factory, these are positive, right? These are going to lead in a positive direction. And so we weren't that focused, I think, in the 18th century and earlier. But increasingly, over the course of the 19th century, with Karl Marx, with, you know, William Morris and reactions, you know, the arts and crafts movement, there's been a lot of reactions against major disruptions. The reactions against disruptions have increased over the past 150 200 years. and certainly in a city you know cities California cities that and and I'm looking at Oakland from the 1890s to the present so in the kind of you know mostly the 20th century the disrupt you know the the development w- w- that occurred in California cities was massive you know across the board. And the disruptions were massive. And I think they took on a negative tinge because of the idea that they should not negatively affect the mass of the population the way they had in the past, that that wasn't acceptable anymore, that we had to have a new kind of way of doing things. And I think up through the 1960s and maybe very early 70s, that you wouldn't have seen most of these things as big disruptions, but increasingly they were seen. So, you know, and I, I, it all depends on which, which development one is talking about, but certainly freeways, urban renewal, you know, skyscrapers, you know, these kinds of large mega projects were seen as increasingly from the sixties onward as very disruptive and disruptive to various parts of the population, oftentimes the general population, and benefiting not necessarily everyone. So I think there's been a, I think when you talk about the equation of development and disruption, there's been a transformation in that equation over time that development must not, should not cause excessive disruptions or negative disruptions for a large section of the population or even smaller sections the way it did in the past. So I think there's been, you could call it a kind of, there's been a reaction, I would say. San Francisco is a great example. First freeway revolt in the country, right? 1950, late 1950s and through the sixties where San Francisco based San Franciscans, neighborhood groups basically said, we don't want freeways everywhere in the city. There were 10 proposed and only two really got built so a lot of them were canceled or, or put off and then n- they never happened that's a great example of a transformation at the same time what's happened is we're we're in, we're a society that today has a very hard time doing big projects because of this mm-hmm. so we've gone from a you know let's say 60 years ago where you could big projects were in the united states was great at doing the interstate highway system you know building large airports you know, the airports in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, they they built partly on landfill, you know, or wholly on landfill, those airports. Couldn't do that now. Couldn't build those kind of big airports on landfill. So all the kind of large projects that were being done that made our society comp, you know, kind of competitive and, and in a lot of ways successful worldwide, can't do them anymore. You, you know, I travel around the world a lot and I go, you know, to China and Japan and Europe and other parts of the world, and we're lagging in a lot of ways because we've developed this kind of, you know, could call it, it started with the word NIMBYism, right? This reaction to disruption. One Another example is is that—is what I use, that word NIMBY, which started off posing big projects like freeways or I don't want a sewage treatment plant right near our neighborhood, you know? Those kind of, it made sense to a lot of extent. But it's extended over time. You know, CEQA was passed in California in 1971. It's being wielded for lots of things that it wasn't intended for, like stopping anything you don't want nearby, you know. And a lot of neighborhood groups, these same neighborhood groups that started protesting the sewage treatment plant or the freeway are now protesting a small apartment building you know, because they don't want it nearby because it might create more traffic. It might reduce parking on their street. It might introduce new people to their neighborhood. They don't want that. So I think the trajectory of development disruption has really transformed. It kind of peaked in the mid in the post-war decades, the late 40s, 50s, 60s, when the federal government was very involved in development, not nearly as involved today in urban development, And then citizen groups the birth of neighborhood uh resistance uh starting in the 60s and continuing to the present has really fought against large-scale group large-scale projects to the point where you know i think one of the biggest uh challenges or the biggest problems in california now i think most people would agree is housing shortage we don't have enough housing units throughout the state especially in the coastal zones right And that's a large result. That's a lot. A lot of the reason for that is that people have wanted, like take Marin County as a kind of classic example. They want the perfect lifestyle, and Marin County today the population is in the low 200,000s. and it's been that way for almost fifty years. It has hardly grown, just a little bit. It's probably one of the most. You've probably been there. It's one of the more desirable places, you know, along the coast, it's right north of San Francisco, a lot of people would want to live there, but they can't, because Marin has essentially that, you know, they they opted out of BART a long time ago, and they fought a lot of other large developments over the course of time, and they have stayed relatively small, they, they're they the most homogeneously white county in the nine-county Bay Area, the only one that's over 50% white, even You know, they're, I think it's over 70% white. So they've stayed white, they've stayed wealthy, and they've stayed with a low population. And they've preserved the kind of wonderful lifestyle for, for the people who are lucky enough to live there. On the other hand, the people have to work there and, you know, roof the houses and repair the streets and work, you know, in the restaurants. They can barely afford, they can barely afford to live there. And they often do arduous commutes. From the Central Valley to places like Marin or Silicon Valley, south of San Francisco, you know you're having these incredible commutes because people can't afford that wonderful lifestyle. Not everyone; only certain people can afford it. So we've, I think, we went overboard. I can say in California, you know, at mid-century, on large-scale development, backed by both private industry and the federal government and state and local government. And then we retrenched to the point where today it's very hard to get anything done. We, you know, you must. You, I'm sure you're familiar with the high-speed rail conundrum in California. We're trying to build it, but it's proceeding at a snail's pace. It's it's not being built in Los Angeles or San Francisco area yet. And you know, you, you I went to China in uh, the early 2000s, and then was there not re- not long ago, and. You know they've built high-speed rail throughout the country. Every, it, it's, it's phenomenal. Now that's an authoritarian government that's able to do development as they see fit without citizen input, right? And and our level of citizen involvement and you know and the democratic back and forth has ironically made us hard, it's harder to do, for us to do large-scale projects like that. It's harder for us to push forward big housing development, you know, which we need. It's harder for us to build rapid rail transit. It's harder for us to do things. You know, it was hard, you know, President Trump couldn't get his infrastructure built through but President Biden did. That was hard though. And it was something that Republicans, and Democrats both agreed. We need to fix our infrastructure. We need to upgrade it. It took a long time to do that. It was very difficult and it's not as much as, you know, I think a lot of us would have wanted to see. So, it's an interesting situation we're in. How do you how do you build democratically and egal with an egalitarian focus for most people, and at the same time, not you know incur the kind of development effects that were so negative. You know, people you know building freeways through mostly minority neighborhoods urban renewal basically wiping out huge areas of lower income and minority neighborhoods near the cores of downtowns you know there was a lot of negative effects that were going on how do you find a balance between doing enough so that we remain a competitive society that so we can all get around and we can all live in you know live safely and not have the huge homeless problem that we have in California how do you do that and at the same time you know Make sure that it occurs in a way that's democratic and fair to most people. It's, it's, it's. I think it's the great urban issue, right, facing us now.
0: Yeah, I think Jane Jacobs would be rolling in her grave if she knew about what nimbyism turned into, because I think a lot of people just live in that paradigm of the Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs paradigm. But, you know, these people in Marin are not Jane Jacobs. They're not trying to preserve, you know, historical downtowns that have grown up organically and have all of these, you know, kind of what people need in in an area that just emerged uh, due to demand and, you know, meeting people where they are. And you know, I I totally hear what you're saying about the the democratic element. The people that are, you know, wrapping burritos in Marin County and driving home to Stockton don't have time to go to a community meeting to discuss, you know, whether there should be an apartment building there. And the people that are showing up are the people that are most likely to resist it. So there's all these, you know. So we could we could go for a long time on this. I want to jump into your book to go back in time so we can understand the present. I want to ask you a question though about your background. So. How does your background in architecture and theory? How does that cause you to view a city like Oakland differently than a traditional historian that's looking at history?
1: Okay, so my background is I, I grew up in New York City, so I and I grew up in New York City. Luckily, I now I look back at it. Luckily for me, at a time when New York City was kind of the the center of the world, you know, it was it was after the Second World War, Europe was in in ash, it was you know in rubble. Japan was in rubble. China, you know, none of these places, and New York and the United States. New York was the you know the largest, most dynamic city in the United States, and it was doing all this stuff. You know, all these things. You know, financially, media, art, architecture. It was all happening, and I watched. You know, growing up, the bridges go up. All the great bridges around. You know, the Verazzano, the Throg's Neck, the Triborough, and this, you know, watch the skyline change, it's still changing, I was just there. It doesn't stop in New York. And so I grew up with that kind of fascination, right? With, wow, cities are can be unbelievably dynamic and exciting. And at the same time, I also grew up with watching the South Bronx fall into poverty and large, large segments of Brooklyn and, and Manhattan become not only poor, but abandoned in New York City it was the exact same moment that we're building these bridges and and tall buildings and stadiums and you know all sorts of imp- so-called improvements and large segments uh, sections of the city are being vacated and so I, I i that was that has driven me that kind of contrast between the wonder of what we can do and the kind of bemusement at what we don't do or, or how we do things. Like how can we let, uh, you know, large parts of our cities fall up to pieces? You know, I knew, a, you know, so that was my background. And then I, I got a, uh, I got a master's in city planning from Harvard and went on to uh, work for the city planning department in San Francisco in the eighties. And then I wanted to broaden my scope. You know, I was doing a lot of, work on historic preservation planning. And so I got, went back to grad school and got a doctorate at MIT, and then taught at, in Chicago for four and a half years at University of Illinois Chicago, and then moved back to San Francisco to teach at California College of the Arts, and, uh, and then moved to Oakland a few years later, because I couldn't buy, we wanted to buy us a, a single family house with a nice garden yard, and we couldn't afford that in San Francisco so we moved to the east bay which is a common you know trage- you know common pattern so i worked both as a planner and then as a historian and i was a historian pretty much my writings are about architecture and urbanism so that, you know cities and buildings and so that's my that's and so living in oakland now i i've been in oakland now for 21 years and i had lived here a little bit earlier so after, you know, after I lived here for a while, I think by the early by about 2010 to 2013, I was, you know, getting really interested in Oakland because I'm living here and this is what I do for a living. I tend to look at where I am. And I noticed that, you know, there what there were books about Oakland, but none of them really focused on the physical environment, you know, in a comprehensive way. You know, how did the physical environment of Oakland come about, especially you know, in modern times, since the streetcar, electric traction streetcar of the eighteen nineties, and the tall building, you know, around the turn of the century, and all that. And I said, I noticed they just they didn't exist. So I wrote a couple of articles uh, about Oakland. One about downtown. One about Jekyll and Square. And then I thought, wow, the stories that I came about found in those articles, in those articles, and, and shared shared, there are a lot more stories. So I wanted to tell a lot more stories about Oakland. So I came upon the idea of writing a whole book. And that's the book that came out, you know,
0: not quite two years ago. Yeah. How do you think an urban planner would read your book differently than a lay reader?
1: They would understand a lot of the mechanisms, right, of how development proceeds. You know, they would understand the development process much better. I think most lay readers have a, you know, it's hard to know. You know, financing, bank financing, finance, getting financial packages together is, is is complicated. The whole process of shepherding, of, of acquiring, of buying land and, and assembling land, land assembly is really complicated. The, how the city government f- figures in that with permitting process, both for building permits and planning permits and other types of permits, all of that, you know, the citizen review process that occurs, all of that most people would not be familiar with neighborhood like a neighborhood activist would be familiar planners would be familiar architects you know government officials but i would say for lay readers they're not you know they're not as aware of how and that's been one of the comments i've gotten about my book for a lot of people they're like wow i didn't know how my oakland came about i, I you know now i walk around and i question everything i go hmm, how did that happen <laughs> and they realize that all those things were decisions Everything was a decision. And it was a decision made by one individual or a few individuals, or it was made by many. It was a decision that was sometimes conflictual. Everything came about through a process. The city is an organism that keeps changing and evolving due to a process. And I think a lay reader, that's what's been one of the great benefits. They're able to understand their city, how it came about, at least part of it. I can only do so much. And I think the other thing, they're they, when they when they go around, they're curious now. They're more curious. And I think that's really one of the big goals I wanted to instill in people is to be curious about where you are and to wonder about where you are. Because if you wonder about where you are and you're curious about where, one, you're more excited about life. That makes, that's I think one of the great causes of happiness is curiosity and being on a kind of quest. And two, you get involved. You can get involved and you can actually get involved with a group, you can go to city council meetings, you could write something, you could do a podcast, you could do all sorts of things to get involved with your city, meet other people who are interested. So that's, I think, for lay readers, it's, it's really good to know a little bit more about where you are, and know about, more about the processes that constitute a city.
0: One of the things I try and do in my podcast is get people to think about when a new book comes out, particularly in the domain of history, that it's adding to an ongoing conversation. Now, you mentioned a second ago that there hadn't been much written about the history of development in the terms of physical landscape apparatus in Oakland, but your book is a contribution to a huge field of urban history and thinking about development. So what do you think your book is adding to that conversation that maybe distinguishes it from some of the other things that have been written? You can even talk about San Francisco, just given its adjacency and its relevance.
1: Yeah and if you look at the books that, that were out on Oakland before I before my book there was an, a a history written by Beth Bagwell uh published in the 1980s uh it was assembled from newspaper columns that she did for a local newspaper and it it was good i mean it but it ended kind of around in the 1920s which is a 200 year 100 years ago yeah uh, And it didn't really cover a lot of issues that one would cover now. It's just the way the mentality of the 80s wasn't. You didn't really go into the whole issue of race. You didn't really go into transportation. You didn't go into the things to the extent that one would have. And certainly didn't. A lot of people, when they, you know, a lot of times when people think of history and you go to a history museum, they often don't focus on the last 50 to 100 years, they focus on the earlier periods, you know. The Native settlement, the colonial colonial settlers, you know the, those eras. And so, I, I, you know, I thought it was really important to focus on the most dynamic and consequential period, which was the twentieth century. And the uh, some of the other books that were out, there were a couple, of, several about race and inequality, racial dynamics. Robert Self, American Babylon. Chris Romberg wrote a book. No, they're there. That both covered those kinds of issues they don't they really well but they don't cover them in a sense of the physical environment they don't really talk about how all aspects of the physical environment were part of those kind of racial and political dynamics so i tried to bring the best i saw you know uh, you know borrow you know take from the build upon the best i saw what had been written san francisco there's a huge literature much larger than oakland because san francisco is you know is the premier city. And one of the one of the one of my hopes for my book and books like it because there have been several other books on Oakland of on, you know, there's one on recent on geology, there's one on the police. One of my hopes is that when I read an urban history about, let's say, housing or transportation in the in the years to come, that Oakland will be part of the discussion. It often wasn't because there hadn't been that kind of research about Oakland. People didn't know the stories about Oakland housing discrimination or about Oakland's freeway plans, things like that. They didn't know those. So they weren't other writers in Baltimore, in Atlanta, in San Diego. They weren't They weren't going to tell an Oakland story and bring Oakland's saga to light because they didn't know about it. And now maybe they'll know more about it. And Oakland will be more part of a national discourse as well.
0: Well, I appreciate you adding that contribution because I know it's hard work to as you said before, when you were describing what an urban planner sees that an average lay reader wouldn't, you know, how complicated a lot of these processes are uh, for doing anything in a city. And so I appreciate the work you've done. And let's get into that. And I'm going to jump into a couple different sections in the book I have questions about. Uh, we're going to start with uh, public transportation. Can you discuss the what you mentioned as the two-pronged form of development that streetcars uh, set in motion? And can we contrast this maybe with state, cities that didn't have streetcars as part of its build out?
1: Yeah. And there aren't that many. Let me say, I'm trying to think of a city. Like Fresno had streetcars. Yeah, 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 we did. You did. I think it's even a Phoenix had streetcars. Really? A- I didn't know that. Yeah, just a few. But I mean, they had them. It was a small city. Okay. San Jose had some streetcars. It
0: was small, you know. Well, maybe there isn't a good contrasting example, but it's really the contrasting example
1: really was sub are, are suburban areas. Oh, yeah, good point. You know, I think the old, you know, you could be a relatively small city and have streetcars. Streetcars were everywhere. I think that the difference between a city that had streetcars and a city that didn't which I'll, I I just call it suburbs, you know, the kind of, you know, the inner suburbs and the outer suburbs, they're totally automotive, right? Is that streetcars encouraged, one, you walked to the streetcar from your house or your apartment. So you had to walk through the city first, through your neighborhood, and you walked to a usually a commercial street because streetcar lines typically became centers of commerce, made sense to put the stores where, the, where people were walking and waiting for the streetcar, changing streetcars. So you walked from a neighborhood, you know, more residential area to a more commercial area, and you walked along streets that were lined with both residences and then commercial buildings. There weren't parking lots and all that stuff, you know, that didn't exist, you know? And you, you, I think you had a more pedestrian, I think your relationship to other people and your relationship to buildings and urban space was much more intimate because you're doing it at a walking pace and you're able to converse with people and meet people, have that, those kind of interchanges. The kind of streets, I live off Lakeshore Avenue in Oakland, which is uh, a street that has, you know, streetcar, it was developed during the streetcar era, so it's lined with stores continuously, and I, I think though the tower district in Fresno is like that. There are a few neighborhoods in Fresno, in the older parts of Fresno, that are like that. Obviously, the downtown too, mm-hmm. you know, before the, you know, before and after they built the mall and then they took out part of the mall. Uh, you know, those are examples of streetcar development, that kind of development that's I think pleasant to walk along because there's always something happening. There are people walking and there's always a new building and a new store or business that you're going by and you're it's it kind of that kind of interaction is very rich I think for and we it's kind of what we think of as urbane. You know when when we go off to other c- cities around the world typically we you know when we're in the parts where you can walk you have a kind of sense of urbanity because you're walking, you're looking around, you have that kind of full Body experience of a city. It's very different when you're driving a car. I actually wrote a book about this that came out earlier called Zoomscape. It's about how people see the world through cars, trains, airplanes, photographs, films, and television. How they see the world basically through mirror, through windows and screens. Very different mm-hmm. than how you see it. You know when you're when you're actually walking at and you're at eye level and you, the kind you can. So I think if you go to, if you, if you contrast streetcar neighborhoods with, with automotive, you know, neighborhoods that developed solely in the automotive era, you're going to see a completely different kind of city. Like most of Fresno, I think above a certain point, right? When you get up to like Shaw or, you know, the, those Northern East West avenues, very automotive, right? And you're not, it's not a place where people are going to walk if they have a choice. I know people do walk in those neighborhoods because they have no choice and there are bus lines, but, you know, Herndon, you know, but you're not going to. And the whole scale of the city transforms because, one, there's parking lots everywhere, you know, and parking is a big part of the automotive equation, right? Not only do we drive automobiles uh, on streets that are typically much wider than the older streets where streetcars were or before streetcars, which were much narrower. So much easier to cross the street in in a streetcar neighborhood than in an automotive neighborhood. But you need, so you have have these wide streets, and I talk about that with Oakland, you know, Oakland and like a lot of American cities underwent a street widening in the automotive era from the 1920s into the seventies for 50 years, a lot of streets were widened. Buildings were torn down on one side or moved and they widened the street in order to make it more automotive friendly. They also was the whole parking issue, right? Where do you put the cars? Because cars don't function unless you can put them somewhere when you want to get out of them. You don't want to stay in them permanently, do you? So, parking, you know, lots and parking access and vehicular, you know, scale is completely different. And it's a little alienating, you know, you, know, you go to a sh- you know a shopping mall and there's like 6,000 parking spaces surrounding a complex of buildings. And you have to walk through that sea of parking to get to the buildings or even a big, you know like a power center, you know, with a set of big box stores and uh, or an outlet center. And, you know, you're basically, people I know in outlet centers, they drive from one store to the next within the same outlet center because they don't know where to go otherwise. You know, you know I
0: I think that's uh, that's why I appreciate that book that just came out, Paved Paradise, yeah. you know, that's getting people to talk about this, because so much of our landscape is parking. And, you know, I, I, it's not clear to me what to do about that, but it, it's clear that we need to think of it more as a problem than we do. It's a, It's a total
1: issue. And, you know, so you look at a city like, I think, Fresno or Oakland, which developed in a in a streetcar era at first and then transitioned into the automotive era you see how do you, how does that city accommodate, you know, the automobile? I mean, what, what typically happened in both cities is that businesses started to move further out, right? You know, automotive, you know, as opposed to streetcars tend to focus development in linear radial patterns, you know, whereas the automobile can go at most anywhere once you build a, a, a network of roads and the federal government has, you know, subsidized that through taxes, gas taxes. State we have California gas taxes as well that subsidize road building. uh, Streetcar companies actually had to pay for their own maintenance for the wires and for the rails and for the chart. You know the power stations. They didn't get federal, you know, and governmental subsidies the way roads did, and so automotive roads. And so, when when you start to get you start to look at a city that has you know purely automotive development, right? It's it's a completely different you know experience and it's and it and so cities that had to go through that transition it was really brutal you know they had to figure out how are we going to bring parking into our cities how are we where are we going to put the freeways you know how are we going to widen the roads you know and they didn't have to do all those things but they did most of them Oakland had plans for eight freeways and they built four so they built half, roughly half the most audacious one was actually going to run in the bay off of Alameda. It was gonna go out beyond the airport and then go on, it was gonna be built on on piles, you know, from above the bay mud and go about, uh, it was about a a third, eighth of a mile from the shore. You would have seen it when you're in the Alameda and Berkeley shore, it would have been this, and it would have, if you know the geography here, it would have paralleled the 880. You know, and the beautiful
0: site that would have been
1: <laughs> the most audacious freeway, I think, for the East Bay. You know, yeah. uh, but you know, a city like Berkeley stopped the. You know, the there was a high. There's a highway in Oakland. It runs in the hills. The 13, the Warren Freeway. It was supposed to actually run into Berkeley and all the way down Ashby Avenue. If you if you know Ashby Avenue, Ashby Avenue would have been a double decker freeway today. Wow. So. The, and, and San Francisco has lots of examples of this too. So the automobile, you know, was much harder to fit into a city than the streetcar. You know, it was much harder uh, because of its requ- its scale and the parking requirements and the structures that, you know, most freeways are built, you know, they're elevated. So, and they have off-ramps and on-ramps and they're incredibly in- invasive and they create a kind of nasty environment around them you know, it's going to be mostly gas stations and other automotive businesses around the on ramps and off ramps. So, it, it, introducing that into the heart of an old city is is very disruptive, and it was for Oakland, and I think it's it, it was the case for most cities. So, I, I you know I talk about that at great length. You know, the whole process of how do you tra- how did how did Oakland transition from a city that was you know, because the streetcar is really short, ironically. You know, it's really from the eight, it was first, it was horse-thrown omnibuses. We had a few of those here. Horses basically pulled a wagon and eventually they put that wagon on rails. And it went relatively slow. And then the, the streetcar came in in the very end of the 1880s into the early 1890s. And it really dominated urban development only for about till the through the 1920s. And by the middle of the ni- middle, late 1920s, the automobile is really gaining ascendancy, you know, in the United States. And so you start getting auto- automotive and streetcar at the same time. And then after the Second World War, the saga of the streetcar is really sad. You know, most streetcar networks are, dis- are are taken down. You know, they they sold them. They the companies were private mostly. And so they were sold and uh disassembled. And uh, we had a purely automotive era in the Bay Area for a while until BART came online. BART didn't really start running until 1972. So from the, and the last streetcar, at last, they were interurbans, which were longer streetcars that go longer distances. They're coupled two to four. They The last one to cross the Bay Bridge, because the lower deck of the Bay Bridge had street had interurbans at first. It was built in 1936, and there were two tracks on the lower deck that accommodated the interurbans that brought people into San Francisco. That stopped in 1958. So from 58 to 72, 74, there was no rail transit across the bay. So it was all automotive. And now, and then BART, you know, built its system. Oakland is this kind of the center of the BART system. And it's you know worked well for Oakland, but if you if you know other cities around the world and on the East Coast, it's a very limited system, right? BART is really a system that is intent was intended all along to complement the freeways, to get some people out of the freeway, out of the their cars because too many people were going over the Bay Bridge. Bay Bridge was probably the, one of the greatest development success stories if you view it by usage, but that led to incredible congestion, which persists until this day, right? So, BART was intended to bring suburban commuters from Eastern, you know, from Alameda and Contra Costa County to downtown Oakland, and really to downtown San Francisco as an alternative to cars using the Bay Bridge and the freeways, and it worked for that to some extent. It worked, but it doesn't really work to get people around the Bay Area in general, and one of the interesting things now is that, you know, with fewer people going downtown, because in San Francisco's downtown is, I think, still the worst in terms of its comeback from the pandemic. It has the most vacant office space and the fewer, fewest number of people have returned to their jobs downtown. Uh, and Oakland is not as bad, but not doing that great either. in ter- you know, slow coming back. And BART revenues are really down, you know, because they're not getting the usage. Because Bart was so reliant, was so focused on getting people downtown and back, it was a commuter system. It was not as focused on getting people around the Bay Area all the time, in general. And like a lot of like, we're, I'm going to Seoul and Osaka in October for a month, Korea and Japan. And you know, I look I look on the map at those subway systems; they're incredible. They cover everything. You can get everywhere. You know. And it would be wonderful in a, in a metropolis like the bay area to be able to go from like where i live i live in the grand lake area at the top of lake Merritt, to go out to san francisco's richmond district or to be able to go out to palo alto you know to be able to go everywhere without a car mm-hmm. you know and that means you have to be able to walk to your bart stop so you got to be within let's say 10 15 minutes of a bart stop walking and be able to get to your destination, and be able to walk then from that BART stop, wherever you're gone, to some uh, to your destination. That we don't have that system right now. We really have a system where people drive, typically drive to BART, park, and then go to the downtowns and back. So our transit system is still kind of, I would call it, a very automotive oriented in in, in the Bay Area still.
0: I definitely recall taking bus lines to Muni lines to BART lines and having all these slips of paper and different things where I just, you know, just wish there was like something that to, to streamline it. But I under, understand that it's complicated to build those layers of BART lines. We could get into this more, but I want to ask you, because I was intrigued by another section early on in the book about uh, secondary downtowns. Uh, what was the obstacle in Oakland for building a secondary town downtown and what kind of what is that for people to understand what that means because I think people just think every city has one downtown and that's the central place in the city and maybe the only other place I can think of would be Manhattan where there's like these you know large areas you know midtown financial district you know so can you explain the concept outside of the Manhattan example
1: yeah, um, outside of Manhattan, you, you do have, you have secondary downtowns in a lot of cities. Um, sometimes they're very close to the original downtown, like Boston. Boston built another downtown, like about an eighth of a mile from the, from the original downtown in the Back Bay, on the edge of the Back Bay, where the Hancock Tower is and the Prudential Center. They built another kind of center. That's an, and there you see examples of that. Chicago did that. Chicago, the downtown was the loop. The original downtown but then the miracle mile where most of the department stores are on Michigan Avenue is is nor is another it's a kind of a second downtown it's neck. it's adjacent so that there's one model of the adjacent the secondary downtown another model is like I, I went to college in St. Louis Missouri they tried they built they started a midtown and the midtown is about two and a half miles from the downtown, so it's not adjacent. It's, there's a big there's a big space in between. And that Midtown in St. Louis had a skyscraper. It had the Symphony Hall, had a major university. It had a, but it kind of struggled because it was hard to maintain that other center, especially after the Great Depression. And so you, you see this phenomenon, Los Angeles has m- multiple downtowns. You know, if you look at, if you look, if you're up in the hills and you're looking at Los Angeles, you see, you see, let's say you're in the north, you know, above the city and to the north by the, you know, Griffith Observatory, for instance. And you're looking at Los And To the left, you see downtown, this big clump, the biggest clump. But then you, as you look toward the ocean, you see about three or four other clumps. One is in Westwood. One is in century, Beverly Hills. Another was in Century City. There's another one, Mid-Wilshire. You know, you see that Los Angeles developed these multiple centers for offices and commerce outside of the downtown. And a city Oakland thought it was going to be able to do that to have because Oakland, I think the ambitions in the 20s, which was the era of Oakland's greatest growth, we're going to be the big city in the Bay Area. That was the feeling. That was like we are on we're on the landward side of the bay. We have more flat land than San Francisco. We have better climates than San Francisco. We have better transportation access to rail. And we sh- rail will be the main, the main city and we're gonna be huge. Like we're gonna be uh, something approaching what Los Angeles became. And it didn't happen because Oakland was constricted by size. You know, it didn't grow physically the way. Los Angeles is I think 450 square miles, somewhere around there. Oakland's about 64. So, you know, it's it's much, it's small. San Francisco's 49-ish. So, you know, San Francisco and Oakland are relatively small in terms of their size. And so we never became that large. And the neighborhood I live in was probably go, was seen of as being the next adjacent downtown. It's 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 like half a mile from the downtown. It starts from the edge of the downtown. And there was a feeling that there's a big movie palace was built, you know, uh, and there was a feeling that office buildings were next and it was gonna be kind of a downtown and then the depression hit. So I think secondary, and there was another Fruitvale district also kind of thought it might have it be a center of a downtown, a, a secondary downtown that was about two miles from the existing downtown, didn't happen either. So I think the reasons they didn't happen in Oakland were twofold, one, the depression, kind of cut off development. And by the time development resumed with a force after the second world war, developers were looking beyond Oakland's boundaries. They were looking to the suburbs. The other reason it didn't happen is it happens. It happened more in Manhattan than some other cities on the east. Chicago has a square sort of one in uptown that's quite, I think it's like five miles from the downtown. Uptown is, it's called Chicago Uptown. It happened in Chicago and New York, I think more because you had rapid rail. Oakland never had rapid rail until BART. So streetcar development doesn't encourage, I think a secondary downtown because the stops are continuous going out. Whereas rapid rail, the stops can be one mile apart or so, you know, and around, if you're going to space, you know development at a 1 mile distance you you have more chance to have a density around that rapid rail station and then have a secondary downtown in oakland so for the reason for streetcar development and the depression it, never, it didn't
0: fully happen here there's just a couple little moves toward it perfect let's talk about uh home building for a second what were kind of both the positive and negative effects of the commercialization of home building in oakland
1: I think the positive effects were that you that, that in the 19th century most people either built homes themselves, you know, you built your own home, or or you or you hired someone who did a you know sort of a a beginning job that wasn't that finished, and you would finish it. Your the streets were not paved, there were no concrete sidewalks. You didn't have sewage. You didn't have you didn't have a plumbing you know all the things we take basically when we take for granted now when you buy a new let's say you buy a new home now the new home is going to have all those things it's going to have every it's going to be equipped in other words it's going to have it come with improvements they called it that was so before commercial developers got into the building of home building homes did not come with many improvements and without improvements you know they were it was kind of a it was you know a slapdash affair, and so that was it. That was a big improvement, I think, for a lot of people. You know that that homes over the course of the twentieth century came with more and more improvements. First, they were just for the rich, but gradually they spread for, to be to the to the middle class and and working class. the The negative is that what happened over the course of the twentieth century, and this is because in, in California, especially because of land costs, because of construction costs and materials. Because of a lot of regula- regulation, because of demand, developers started to build for a smaller and smaller section of the pop- segment of the population over time. So, if you look at the 19 teens and 20s, developers are building subdivisions in Oakland for the working class. They're building for the middle class and for the upper class, different subdivisions in different parts of the city. The ones for the upper class have more amenities. They have more landscaping. They have gates. You know, they're on larger lots. The houses, you know, everything is a little nicer. Middle class, it comes down a little bit, but they're still nice, bungalow houses. And then for the working class, you don't see as much, you know, you see less emphasis on the size of the lot. The lots are small. You don't see as much landscaping, but you do, you're still getting, you still have improvements. That's the 19s and 20s. If you look at the 40s and 50s and 60s, there's almost no housing built now for the for the working class. It's developers are out of that game. They're building for the middle class and upper class exclusively. And poorer people, working class and poor people, are getting subsidized housing now. It's called you know publicly built housing, which is built by public authority and then run by that authority, a housing authority. So there's a, a now there's this public section of the uh, housing economy and a private. There hadn't been a public section before the 1930s. All housing was private, pretty much. Now you have two sec, and the public housing now is just for the poor and was never widely accepted in America. It was, it was there was a lot of resistance to it. Uh, a lot of people, we don't wanna be in the housing. It's the same reason, I think recently recently, when, you know, President Obama passed his Affordable Care Act, a lot of people are like, we don't want the government to provide health care. You know, we, we want it to be private. Well, this, you can imagine with housing, they didn't want it, you know, government to provide housing. We want it to be all private. So that strain of American politics influenced public housing. But so the tragedy of housing in California, especially in the coastal metropolises, is that You saw the supply, right, from the 20s to the 60s to now constrict. Because now, if you look at San Francisco or Oakland, developers are only building market rate housing for I think about 10 to 15% of the population can afford it. Very few people can afford the new market rate rents or condominium prices. It's really hard they, housing activists extract affordable housing commitments from each development. And they range, they started almost at nothing. Now they're up to sometimes 20%. You could say 20% of the units have to be affordable. And they have a scale about what that what constitutes affordable based on in, incomes in the area. But we have a tremendous housing shortage. So part of the, the problem with housing, not only are we not building enough, but what's being built, the market rate housing has been in, skewing more and more to very wealthy individuals, not providing it for less individuals who have to go out then to Stockton. I, when I was re- researching an article on real estate like 15 years ago, I wanted to figure out, okay, within the greater Bay Area, because really the Bay Area includes Stockton and Lathrop and Tracy. It's really a large, it's it's shot into the Central Valley. I want, where's the, where where can one get a house that's, affordable you know and I had to go all the way I found in South Stockton was the most affordable area that was you know fairly rough areas the housing elements were near public housing projects but you could buy a house there for you know a hundred eighty thousand dollars not anymore but you could 15 years ago uh that was as good as it got and then I've looked I when I was doing the research for Helitown I looked in Oakland what was the most affordable because no one's building new single family in Oakland because there's no land. So the only kind of development that occurs in Oakland now is multifamily. It's very hard to build single family. Really occasionally there'll be a parcel of land that people will build some single family. But, and it was, it was, it was, it was by the airport, these developments that were built right after the second, during and after the second world war for war worker housing, those are the cheapest housing you can get in Oakland. And at the time, I think five years ago, you could buy a house for $350,000 in a rather, you know, a, a neighborhood that's had a lot of hard times and not the, you know, not the most best neighborhood. And that was about as cheap as it got. And I think now it's even more. Yeah. So we really have, we, we've really gone into a kind of housing conundrum that, you know, of how do you, you know. This, there's no, it's a complicated question, but there's very little supply. There's a lot of demand. We're not providing enough supply because of all the reasons I mentioned, the costs, and as well as the resistance to building, you know, much greater quantities of housing because it's going to have to be much denser. It's going to have to be taller. There's a controversy now about the North Berkeley BART, and if you've ever seen that BART stop in North Berkeley, it's surrounded by single family homes. And it, it's a BART stop with a parking lot around it and then it's all single family homes. No commerce, just the BART stop. And there's a, now they're, they're going to, BART is going to build housing on the parking lots. They're gonna replace some of the lost parking spaces, of course, because that's what they do, but they are gonna build housing. And now the question is all, there's a fight in the neighborhood how tall is that housing going to be? You know, some people want it limited to eight stories, seven or eight, and which is about as, you know, as, as that's kind of the, what you do when you, you know, you typically build a concrete platform and then wood to- on top of the concrete. And you can only go five stories of wood. So if you build a two-story concrete platform, you can get a seven-story building. If you're going to build with reinforced concrete and steel, you're going to, you don't want to build 12 or you're going to want to build 20 or more because that, for the economics, once you're going to that more expensive material and constructional technology. And so there's this whole debate, should they be seven stories or so, or should they go up 20 and above, you know, around the Bart stop, you know? So even even in, you know, the so-called liberal areas, this is what's paradoxical, right? We mentioned earlier with respect to Marin County, the liberal areas that have liberal politics are fighting still The kind of needs that have to happen, increased density, increased housing, they're still fighting them
0: to this day. So let's transition to talking about parks. Um, You mentioned in your book, uh, I'm going to quote you again, park acquisitions required municipal outlays chronically in short supply, but they did not lead to the municipal or the monumental built outcomes that politicians and donors crave, end quote. So are you saying this in the specific context of Oakland or are you making kind of a broad generalization here about parks and cities that even if you get to name it after somebody and there's a ribbon cuttings that they, they don't accrue the same kind of positive outcomes for politicians that building an opera house or a civic center or some kind of structure like that, that's not, that's, those tend to be for kind of, you know. There's certain kinds of people that go to the opera house. Is that what you're saying here? Or is it specific to Oakland?
1: It's 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 not specific to Oakland. But for instance, if you look at like when munici- municipal parks are a phenomenon of the mid-19th century, they start popping up as cities get larger and larger, right? When cities were really tiny, there was no, you didn't really need a park because you could walk out of the city and you'd be in nature. You'd be in farmland. The larger cities get, there's the more there's an awareness that, oh, my God, we really need to have some green spaces within the cities because most people can never get out of them because it's too far. So p- cities start, look, you know, when you look at discussions of parks, let's say at the turn of the 20th century and into the 20th century, there's a, there's evaluations of how many parks you have per square mile and per citizen. And Oakland really does badly on those for a long time, you know. It's not, it's bad on the, the city just doesn't provide a lot of, is not building a lot of parks. San Francisco was, you know, if you go to San Francisco, Golden Gate Park was, you know, 19th century. There's nothing in Oakland like Golden Gate Park, a big, flat, relatively flat park that's accessible by walking and streetcar lines, you know, to all, to citizens in the city or like Central Park in New York, Franklin Park in Boston. You know, a lot of cities have these big, you know, Relatively spacious parks. Oakland did not manage to do that. Neither did Los Angeles. You know, the California, Fresno didn't. You know, the California cities, aside from San Francisco, are woeful on on that aspect. Berkeley couldn't do it. You know, none of them have really even, I don't remember in Fresno being in a large park, a very large park. You know, they have mid-sized parks, but nothing nothing of a, of a large scale. Sacramento doesn't have that. They have the capital area. That, that's the big park. But other than that, there's not that much. And I think the reason is a, a twofold. One is the biggest business in California has long been real estate, building houses and commercial. That's what That's what California, it's all changing now, right? Because California is no longer growing. You know, our population, I don't know if you read, there was a reports this week that our population is not going to reach 40 million problem, even into 2060, like a long time from now, where we're going to, we're kind of, we're, we've reached a point, we've stopped growing. But up until now, you know, you think about the era I wrote about for Hellatown and Oakland and other Californians, growth, that was what, you know. So if you build a large park, especially in a central area of a city that everyone can get to. What are you doing? You're taking a lot of land out of the development equation. So developers fought it. They were not into it. And they're the ones who are backing the kind of conservative, the mayors who don't want to outlay funds for it.
0: Did they push, did these developers point to the challenges of building Golden Gate Park as part of their reasoning? The sandy sandy shore area, the winds, the kind of the people resisting tax increases to build yeah. the park?
1: Yeah, they point to tax. They don't want, ta- they point to tax increases. They point to difficulties. Oakland, you didn't have those same difficulties. I tell a story about the attempts to build a large park on the, you know, that was going to be several hundred acres or, you know, not as big as Golden Gate Park, but certainly large enough for Oakland. And so one, yeah, one was this attitude that I think stepping back a second, another attitude was like, wait, most of Oakland, this is, we're talking the teens now, right? A little over 100 years ago, most of Oakland's undeveloped. There's parkland looking like everywhere because California tends to look like parkland without doing anything, right? California nature, it's it's just, you know, it's just, you'll have a meadow and a grove of a copse of trees. And a lot of California is just so beautiful that people like, whoa, what do we need parks for? We have it. They didn't realize that all that would be taken away by development over the course of time, which is what happened. But so that was one reason that in the 19 teens, there wasn't more urgency, the other reason was what you said, you know, we don't want the mayors would argue, you know, we don't want to increase tax. We don't want to use taxes for this reason. Uh, and we'd li- rather use them. you know, not take land development, land out of the development equation. I think those were the main reasons. And and and, and it's why, you know, the only cities that really did it in California, I, I should have mentioned San Diego did it and San Francisco. Those are the two cities that really built great central parks in in the whole state. There isn't a third. San Jose didn't do it. Fresno, Sacramento, Oakland, all the other, Long Beach, none of them were able to do it. And I think it's for these same reasons. Uh, And what, what was marvelous, though, in the Bay Area and for Oakland is that you had this movement that eventually became the East Bay Regional Park District, which is now the largest park district in the country, it just covers the two East Bay counties, Alameda and Contra Costa. I think there are 125,000 square miles of parkland in yeah. in, the two, in, the two, in the two in the two in the two counties, and Oakland, because of our water shortage, we had a, you know a whole set of watersheds established, right? And this is one of the secrets to the Bay Area. The reason we have a lot of public land is twofold. Water shortage, so the need for watersheds, so you can't build on those watersheds for water, and two military reasons. A lot of land was sequestered for the military around the Golden Gate, a lot of military bases. Also, you couldn't build, right? Like the Presidio, Oakland had a lot of, Oakland had three large military bases. Couldn't build on those things. So one of the reasons for a lot of public land in the Bay Area is, is the military and water shortages. Another is topography, it's just really steep topography. But when you add, when you when you look at all that, the East Bay Regional Parks District, they they, they saw the possibility once East Bay mud was formed, right? And we're getting our water now, you know, it was formed in Berkeley and Oakland, largely at Berkeley's behest in the 1920s. We're going to get our water from the Sierra, like San Francisco does. We're not going to take it from Yosemite, like Hetch Hetchy, We're going to have another, the McCullumney River. Once you formed, once East Bay mud was formed, they had surplus land. They had land at the top of the hills that they didn't need for the watersheds. So the the park district was. Formed. Some citizens came upon the idea. We're gonna. What about getting that surplus surplus land, which was ten thousand acres? You know, I think I said one hundred twenty five thousand square miles. It's one hundred twenty five thousand acres. Sorry, that was. So they said, let's let's take that ten thousand acres and make it into a park system at the top of the hills. So above Oakland and Berkeley, you have Tilden, Redwood, Sibley, Chabot, regional parks. And that's the beginning of the system. So Oakland, on the one hand, didn't build enough parks for citizens in the places that were very accessible. But in the places that were less accessible, you pretty much need a car to get to them. We have a lot of wilderness parks, essentially, large parks where you can hike for you know, miles and miles. So we have on the one hand, a great park system for that, but not a great park, you know, Lake Merritt has a little park around it and it's really used to help because people want it, but it's not big enough to accommodate really what it what it, what the demand.
0: Yeah. I, I lived in Pasadena for a little while in Eaton Canyon right up in the hills. I mean, that's what Los Angeles is the same way as you have to go up and drive up into the hills to get hey. access to any kind of park system. I do want to switch gears here and talk about uh, sporting arenas because- this is, you know, professional sports is such a big thing.
1: Not anymore for Oakland.
0: Can you contrast? Yeah, I know that we'll get to that. I want you to contrast the way that the Oakland Museum was financed versus the Coliseum. And given secondarily the number of stadiums being financed, what can we learn about the economic benefits and liabilities of building and housing professional sports teams and communities? And we've got some of these just recently, SoFi in Los Angeles and how much that took to finance and build out. And then um, I was reading about some of the stadiums that are being proposed in the Midwest and different parts of the country where, you know, taxpayers are going to be taking on a a big chunk of uh, financing these things with, you know, maybe somewhat questionable economic benefits for the community. So can you kind of set the set the scope of what we learned in Oakland's situation?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think it was rather remarkable what happened in terms of sports teams in Oakland. There was a moment in the 60s when Oakland had four professional teams in in, in, in hockey, basketball, football, and baseball. They had four teams. That didn't last that long. but they, But the basketball, baseball, and football teams lasted until a few years ago. So for over 50 years, Oakland had three professional teams in the major leagues in each of the major leagues for that sport, which is unheard of for a city of roughly 400,000 people. it's There's no other city that of that size. Uh, a lot of it has to do with being the center of the East Bay, which is, you know, you're talking about two and a half million to three million people. Uh, but we did have this incredible richness of sports teams. I think part of the reason we got th- those stadia the two stadia, right? The, the Coliseum, which housed, which housed the Raiders and the A's, still houses the A's, and the arena where, where where the Warriors played for so long, is that it was a competition with San Francisco. You know, Oakland, so much of Oakland's history from the end of the 19th century, even way back to the Transcontinental Railroad, right? 1869 when Oakland first sees, oh my God, we're with the Western terminus of this railroad that goes all the way to the East coast. We're going to be really important city. We're going to be like, is the competition with San Francisco. How do we, how do we equal or best San Francisco? And really only two areas, I think historically Oakland were able to do that. One was the port in the port of Oakland, where really Oakland became the port, the major port because of containerization. And you couldn't do it in San Francisco. It just wouldn't work. There's no space for it. They don't have the highways or the rail links. They don't have the space for, you know, you need lots of large aprons where you store the containers. Oakland was able to do that margin on landfill. And then the sports stadium, and both were in the sixties. The sixties were in a way, some of the worst things in Oakland, like tearing down downtown to build a failed shopping mall that never happened that was the 60s but also the port happened in the 60s the container port we were the second largest container port in the world for a t- for a while number 2 after rotterdam and then the sports stadiums we were able in 66 to open up the you know the the uh, coliseum and arena it was public yeah there was a lot of public money it was the city and county the city of oakland and the county of alameda combined to per, you know the land was it was kind of landfill. It was former mud flats, They but to improve the land and bring it up to standards and then actually build the two edifices, which were beautiful, incredibly beautiful work by Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill, some of the nicest architecture of any stadia in, in American history. And then they were marred later, both of them. Al Davis, you know, by his wall for, for the football team, you know when he when the Raiders came back, they left and they and they they came back, but there was this attitude. It was a public-private kind of thing. There were private interests involved, and then there were public authorities involved, and they worked together. Same with the Oakland Museum, public-private partnership. To actually, you you had the big uh, business leaders in Oakland still, Henry J. Kaiser and Stephen Bechtel. You know Bechtel Industries and the Kaiser Industries and others, you know, they pushed for these things. They were, you know, they were backing these these developments. They wanted Oakland to be a first-class city and a first-class city meant having a first-class museum and a first-class sports teams. And so there was that attitude from the late fifties, right? Cause really these things are germinating in the late fifties to do that on the part of public authorities and private business together. And it happened. It was a kind of, you know, it was maybe fortuitous in some ways, but, you know, the 49ers, you know, you know got the Raiders as a AF, you know, the AFL team that, you know, com- and then, you know, the A's became the American league team a- alongside the giants who had come, a- who had come a little bit earlier, but they, I think what, what now, and now we've lost all three almost, it looks like the A's are going, and we've lost all three so oakland will have no sports teams and i think it it speaks to an era when yeah, on the, yes the legacy of all that money that especially went later for the uh, you know well going back when there was lots of hopes when the two stadia were built that they would be self-supporting and all the money would come back because development would there would be this huge set of developments around the stadium it didn't happen a lot of development never went there because they are located in one of the rougher parts of town, uh, and so not a lot of business was rushing to go there. And so along Hagenberger and Sixty Sixth Avenue, iffy development. Most development is further on Hagenberger toward the airport. So the development, the kind of the feeling that oh, if we build these stadia, there's going to be all this development that's going to cr- create all this bring money into the city and, and help pay for the stadia. It didn't quite. It didn't get realized nearly to the extent that it was hoped. And then later when the Raiders came back, right, and they built the, you know, the Coliseum Davis erected that huge uh, set of stands, which blocked the view of the Hills, which was one of the nicest things about going to the watch an A's game. You, You got a view of the Hills and wrecked the whole stadium in a way. And also big debt for the city and the County you know, ever since. So that attitude, you know, oh my God, we're paying that debt off. When it came to fighting to keep the teams, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, that you didn't have that. One, the private, the big moguls were gone. You just don't, Oakland doesn't have single individuals, private who run, who are really wealthy, who can make the kind of difference that you need to make. That's a big problem in Oakland. You have that in San Francisco more, you know. Dee Dee Willsley was able to, you know, realize, you know, the financing for the De Young Museum. There's no one in Oakland who can do that anymore. There's no rich individuals who can amass others and say, I need, I need 10, 10 million dollar gifts and I need to put that together. You, you can't do that in Oakland. There aren't people who can do that from business side. And the government side, the government doesn't want to do it, you know. So, you know, the warriors left. I think they left first, or the Raiders. I'm, I'm, I think the Warriors left first, and then the Raiders went to Las Vegas, and there wasn't a huge fight to keep them here. And then the A's this year, you know, there were proposals to build an A stadium along the right by Jack London Square, the Howard Terminal. You know, it's an empty shipping terminal, and the 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 the, you, you, the city doesn't have the private entrepreneurs to to kind of spearhead it. And it doesn't have a city government that's going to really work with them to do that. The city government was a little lackadaisical about fighting, and, and so we 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 lost all three teams. And so that kind of all that glory that went with the sports teams, I you know it's it's a t- it's a really I think it's a difficult equation. How much do they bring to a city, both in terms of dollars and in terms of image and satisfaction for the citizens? And, you know, I don't know that, I don't know, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, to, to figure it out exactly. But from my perspective, I think cities do need to contribute something, you know, they've got to set the plate in order to, because otherwise you'll get another city like Las Vegas and Nevada, which are contributing. We'll see how much, you know, how that works, but I have a feeling they will to build this. Vegas is in the period, Vegas is very much doing what Oakland did in the '60s. Now they want to be on the map and one of the ways they can see and they already were on the map in a lot of ways they're a very prominent place but having i think you know having they're going to get an nba team soon i think that they're next they they in seattle are next so they're going to have all a lot of major sports teams and they wanted it and they and they you know business you know the the leaders of the business community and the government work together oakland was kind of just had uh, didn't have the stomach for it anymore and so we lost them we lost we lost all three san francisco just has two now because really the the 49ers play i think 50 miles away <laughs> yeah. they call themselves the san francisco 49ers but they play in santa clara but the warriors play in san francisco and the giants do and so san francisco ha- has kept two teams and and that that's just gonna and there's a hockey team in san jose so And that tells you about the demographics of the Bay Area, how it's changed. San Jose and Silicon Valley are much more important now. They weren't 50, 60 years ago. Oakland was much more important. Now the South Bay is much more important. That's where the money is. And that's where a lot, you know, and so they they have two of the four teams in Santa Clara and San Jose, and San Francisco has the other two, and Oakland doesn't.
0: I mean, I will say it's probably a, A real complicated calculus to determine if you're being over leveraged by housing a team and the use of real estate for that purpose and making projections and predictions about what kind of economic benefits will accrue from that. When you have boosters that are really excited to have a sports team in their community, but are making promises that could be just hot air. I, it doesn't seem like it's an easy calculus to come to any kind of answer on. I've got one more section before we wrap up. i want to talk about deindustrialization because it's such a big factor in Oakland. And uh, we've kind of touched on housing and Bart a little bit already, but I wanted to really yeah. spend a moment on deindustrialization if we can. Um, so one of the interesting facts you point out in the book was the 1906 earthquake shifted industry to the East Bay. Uh, counterfactually, do you see that coming to pass without san francisco having to rebuild from scratch
1: yeah i think it still would have happened maybe a little slower it might have taken a little longer but i i think i think the first world war was a big factor as well you know shipbuilding and a lot of a lot of just increased economic the united states started building you know the european powers are all engaged in this war and we start just you know, providing them with agricultural products and other types of products, you know, manufactured products. So it would have happened. It was, it's another example. It's like the sports teams, you know, from the 60s to the, you know, the, the teens, you know, so for like six, 60 years, we had these great, Oakland was a great sports town. Now it's not. The industrialization, I think from the teens to the fifth, to the late forties, it was a. It was we became a kind of the Bay Area industrial powerhouse, second only to Los Angeles, west of the west of the Mississippi. We, 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 you know, we had everything. We had you know, we had three automotive assembly plants. We had shipbuilding along the estuary and the harbor. We had General Electric had three plants in the city of Oakland. Westinghouse had a plant. You know, we had all the. Cereal companies, Kellogg's and shredded wheat had plants. You know, we 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 just were we just were we were an industrial city, a city that made things, and the reason was we had the railroads and the port. We you know it was where you know you you had you had you had shipping and railroads, and you had more land than San Francisco to do it. So the whole East Bay coast from Oakland and Alameda up through Emeryville and Berkeley became a kind of it, it, the main the bay area's main industrial sec- sector the same reasons for the same reasons in effect that it, it became a great industrial sector were the reasons for its demise transportation and land at a certain point after the second world war Oakland doesn't have any more land on which you can build factories and the port starts taking the land and using it for the port and the airport, the container port and the airport. So there's no, there's no, the only place Oakland could build land was in the Bay, right? And the port is doing that. And by 1971, during due to the, the Bay Area Conservation and Development Commission, you can't even landfill anymore, right? There's been no more significant landfill since 1971. So companies that want to expand because... Most factories after the war are reliant much more on trucks. They're reliant on forklifts. They want to be everything on one level, horizontal. They don't want multi-story buildings. They want large floor plates. They want big parking areas. They want land. And so Oakland doesn't have the land. Old, it's 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 a story of old cities across the country, from Manhattan to Chicago. You know, the Manhattan was, you know, Soho, you know, the famous district in in Manhattan, that was a manufacturing district. And all that stuff left to go to New Jersey and other places for land. And then those buildings just sat empty. They were using them for storage. (laughs) And then, you know, they were going to tear down most of it and build an expressway across Soho. And then people like, no, 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 these buildings are great. And now it's one of the most expensive parts of Manhattan because it's been converted first by artists and then wealthy individuals into a, a residential enclave. That's what ha- the, the same reasons that Oakland, you know, tr- the trains and, and, and shipping and transportation and the availability of land earlier in the 20th century, by the late 20th century, we didn't have it. And so the auto companies go down the 880 corridor. You know, there was a, a Ford plant in Richmond they moved to milpitas the gm plants in oakland moved to fremont they're now the tesla plant you know so the plants start moving you know or moving either within the bay area or they start moving out of state motorola left you know entirely you know you know a lot of companies just closed down so either they're leaving the state or they're or they're moving out to the bay area suburbs and there's this huge deindustrialization of Oakland. Oakland initially was positive on that. The city leader, they thought that okay, it's going to be okay because we're still the center, and we're going to make this office downtown into this really like San Francisco. We're going to have a huge office downtown. We're going to have luxury housing downtown. They thought this, and none of it happened. The, you know, the office downtown Bruce grew, but not exponentially. And luxury housing didn't start coming in until Jerry Brown, you know, like 15 years ago, not in the 60s or 70s at all, because it was a poor city with a lot of problems. So the industrial hit really hard in Oakland. You know, I think from the first, the shipyards were the first casualties. And then it just cascaded for the next 30 years. It was a long process. From the from the 50s all the way into the uh, to 1990, and it was a tragedy because it, you have two phenomenon going on. You have a large migration of blacks from the American South to Oakland, starting in the Second World War, to work in the, all these industries. That's was one of the jump, you know, a, another jumping point, you know, the war industry, and then after the war slowly but surely these industries are closing and they're laying off black workers first often because of racism. And so by the sixties, you have this large black population that's migrated to Oakland, right? And the the, the the jobs are not there. You know, they just can't get jobs. They can't get jobs in government. They can't get jobs with the department stores and the restaurants and the factories are, are closing steadily. And that's, when you start to develop a kind of underclass in Oakland and crime problems because people had no they, you know they they were kind of out of the legitimate economy. so deindustrialization really created it's the same problem that happened across the country Baltimore, Cleveland, all St. Louis, all these cities that you know large populations moved to them and then the hit and these populations are left with nothing and so they start to fester. Things start to go bad. So and we're still facing that. We're still facing the after effects of racism and deindustrialization in Oakland, because you have a you have an underclass that is still not part of the system. The crime problems are still really, they've been bad the last couple of years in Oakland.
0: We're going to close with two sections. One's a rapid fire section. I'm going to throw some. Kind of either ors at you, real quick, and then we'll uh, finish with books. Uh, so first, either or: Did you think the movie *Blind Spotting* accurately captured gentrification politics in Oakland?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, some. It's a little, you know, it's it's a little sensational. Yeah, the characters are, you know, over, but I think it
0: did capture some of it. Uh, next one: Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of East Oakland?
1: I'm a little pessimistic because it's it's not doing well now it hasn't done well for so long you know that's the area that had the most rapid white flight to the suburbs in the 50s and 60s and it has you know we've had a huge in-migration of for people from Latin America and East Asia and the and especially Mexican population in East Oakland is now the largest by the black population has gotten much smaller but I don't, you know, I don't know long-term you know, what's going to happen. You know, it's still a poor, it's still a poor area with with a lot of crime and not a lot of development, scattered development. So I'm, I'm a little
0: pessimistic. Okay. Architecturally speaking, are bungalows over or underrated? They're probably underrated because they're, they're a really wonderful, Yeah last one do you think the tech boom in the bay area has positively or negatively affected the culinary scene and why
1: the culinary scene i don't think it i think the tech boom has been too much it's it's like you know um it's like a lot of things in, it's california california tends to boom and and just change dramatically and it's exciting at at times and but at other times it just wipes out everything in its path and the tech boom has really wiped out the diversity of people in the Bay Area. You know, you, especially in San Francisco, you just don't have the kind of diverse neighborhoods that you had before the tech boom and the diverse economy. You know, San Francisco used to employ, you know, there were coffee companies, apparel companies, financial services companies. They're, they're all, they're all, they're, the reason the downtown's doing so badly is it's all tech. It, we went so far into Tech and now the tech workers don't want to work in offices they don't want to come back so we, it hasn't it hasn't been good it's it created kind of homogeneity that San Francisco never had or Oakland Oakland's less affected by the tech boom than San Francisco which is really part of Silicon Valley now so yeah I think it's had I don't know but in terms of restaurants if you can afford those really fancy restaurants sure but I, I, I'm more interested. I like the kind of, you know, down home ethnic restaurants, and there are fewer of them, because yeah. they can
0: All it, right, so... let's close with books. So we've mentioned quite a few books in the conversation. So more at the beginning, when we were talking about the conversation that you are contributing to, but what are two or three books that listeners who might be interested in this subject might gain something from?
1: Well, I thought, I mean, aside from that, we mentioned Gra- Graeber's Paved Paradise, right? The parking book. Mm-hmm, yeah. But another book is I, that I really liked was Matthew Desmond called Evicted. It's a story about mainly about Milwaukee. And it's it really is about how if you're poor in America and there's a housing shortage, which we have, and the whole way housing is managed and run, what an eviction how eviction is hovering over your head and then what it does when you do get evicted what it means for your record and how it and then later how it you know in in it beyond what he did how it's translating into homelessness because a lot of people you know end up they rather not get evicted and it go on their permanent record and they 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 move in with someone and then they it doesn't work out and then they move into their car and then eventually they move into a tent you know, so eviction is a huge, that people don't think about, you know, what it means to be poor in America. And and so I think that book is really great. It starts to really describe the struggles and, and it starts to explain the homeless crisis. You know, another book, I, I, I just read this recently. It, it, I think it's an example. There are a lot of books like it for, de- depending on where you go. It's a book by Lawrence Brown called The Black Butterfly. And it's about Baltimore and about racist po- racist housing policies and racist employment policies some stuff that you like the books where i talked to we talked about with oakland it's like that but it's, it came out like last year and baltimore has really had a lot of hard times you know it's a city that's really struggled you think it would be doing a lot better next to washington you know but it's not and it it starts to explain the kind of lingering effects of that kind of you know when racism was just and this wasn't baltimore it was everywhere but baltimore is a southern city somewhat so it was got maybe a little worse of it what that has done to the population to the city at large to the hopes of the people who were held back by those practices so it's a good book
0: wonderful all right last question uh, what are you working on now
1: i'm working on now is a memoir about my parents mainly my father who my parents are Holocaust survivors from Poland, and it's a memoir about Jewish place in in both Poland and during the Holocaust, what happened, and then in America when they came here in my life. So it's a book. It's a memoir, though. It's a less ac- non academic book.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. This has been great, and I honestly can say I probably had. 20 other questions I could have asked you. Really, the goal for listeners should just be to go buy the book uh, so you can get the full scope of the story because like I said, before we start recording, the book is dense with detail uh, but has a, a great narrative that takes you all the way through. So I think people, especially if you live in the Bay Area, need to read this book to just understand uh, how how things came to be. you know I mean, that's why we go to history is to really understand the present. Um, in a lot of ways. And I think you can't really understand Oakland until you understand how it was built. So thanks again for this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of We'll see you next time.